Welcome back to Streamageddon in Sicily. I'm your host, uh, the hotel manager, Chris Barlow, and I'm joined uh, by my number two, the person who I direct all my uh, anger and frustration at, but is the real operator of the business, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? Buonasera. Ah, buonasera. Uh, uh, Happy to serve. Of course. Always, always. We are here to serve you, dear listener, with everything you need to know about what's going on in the world of TV and streaming and what shows are hot or not, which is not a judgment on their appearance, but a brutal takedown of their quality in some instances. But at this this week, I have a feeling we're not in takedown territory because we're both really excited for the return of The White Lotus, the quote-unquote limited series returns for its second season, uh, officially christening it an anthology. Mazel tov, Mike White, you have an anthology. I I really love this show. I'm so excited to talk about it. I do too. I am such a big fan of season one, and I am so far really enjoying the very setup of season two, and that is all we will be discussing in this episode, the very first episode of season two. Season two, episode one. By the time you hear this, there will be more than one episode out, so if you're further ahead, that's okay, because we are going to unpack our predictions for the season, including, and this is not a spoiler to say... Who is going to die? Because as we established last week on the podcast, death comes for us all. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, thank you for that live sound effect. I did not have that kind of sound effect queued up. And in the back of my mind right now, I was thinking, no, we can't edit that in later. That's impossible. Yeah, I'm so glad to be extremely helpful. There's no sarcasm at all. Uh, no, just, just like on the White Lotus. Just like a character on the White Lotus. Well, you're a regular Aubrey Plaza right there. But we will get to that later because I do have this sound effect queued up. That's, of course, uh, the sound for some news. And I have a collection of odd headlines this week. We're recording a little in advance, so rather than go super topical or super timely, I, I have some things that I think will help us kick off the holiday season, for better or for worse. Uh, beginning with this headline, quote, Disney Plus subscribers are getting first dibs at new Marvel and Star Wars merchandise. Whoo, how do you feel about getting first dibs, Diane? I feel like I'm being tracked by Big Brother Chapek. Yeah, Bob. Last week we played What's That, Bob? Uh, where Bob Chapek espoused his dream of following you everywhere you go and then using that information to serve you up personalized streaming recommendations because isn't that what we all live for? But no, it turns out we also live for merch. Merch, cold hard merch. When I first uh, read this story, I was expecting it to be a lot of content about gifts for kids for the holidays. Uh, And um, then I started reading it and I go, oh, I know some folks in their 30s, 40s. Do you you have the list up there? Do you want to read any of the highlights of these exclusive merch opportunities for you, the adult Disney Plus subscriber? Get ready for some lightsabers. There's a man, the Mandalorian Dark Saber Legacy set. Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi Battle of the Heroes Legacy Lightsaber set. You could have so many lightsabers, Chris. So much legacy. A Doctor Strange cloak. Uh, Captain Carter Vibranium Shield. A Black Panther collectible mask. Come on, that's going to be huge. You, all you of these. skipped over the one I'm most excited for, Scarlet Please. Witch Ear Headband. 
It's like bunny ears, cat ears for for, but in the the Scarlet Witch genre. Are they kind of, of like ears? little horny things? I'm looking at it right now. Uh, you know, they no. Oh, oh no! I really misjudged this. They are full on mouse ears. They are Mickey Mouse ears, but in the style of Scarlet Witch. So there is a horn element, but we are full Mouseketeer here, full adult. Scarlet Witch Mouseketeer. And note, this is something available to you only after Halloween, so they did not intend this as a Halloween item. I just want to give them zero benefit of the doubt here. Well, that would be confusing at Halloween. Are you Mickey Mouse? Are you the Dark Witch? That's true. Yeah, yeah. This, Chris. Way better to show up to a Christmas party in (laughs) these mouse ears. Yes, or a, a swingers party. I, I feel like there's something about that that says the Disney adults are getting a little bit adult. Yeah, you know, I know some Disney gays who would probably show up to a swingers party where, you know, in the old days you'd drop your keys into the bucket. Now you can drop your lightsaber, fish out another lightsaber. Oh, I got the dark saber. <laughs> I'm going home with Mando. What a time to be alive and to be spending all of your money on Disney Plus. It's so true, but you could choose to spend your money on a completely different streaming merch empire, such as... This time, uh, the the thunder has morphed from an ominous uh, tone of Netflix's financial trouble into the ominous mountain of merch coming to bury us all like the landfill wasteland of Wally. It's, it's, Wally, I can't get past Wally. Um, it, it's, it's a thunderclap warning you of the impending net, net flocalypse coming for you. Coming for you in your local Walmart. Because uh, strange link number two I saved this week is that Walmart is going to open in-store Netflix hubs, complete with streaming gift cards. And I would say streaming gift cards is the least weird part of this proposition, because it will also uh, be your go-to destination for Stranger Things merch, uh, the Queen's Gambit branded chess sets, um, whatever toy violence we can pawn off of Squid Game success. Honestly, this is not surprising. And I think that we predicted this last week. We were saying any day now, Netflix would be, you know, uh, having theme parks of their own. This is just one step along the way. Truly, truly. And you know, this is an aside, but it's worth it because I am on a quest to get Diane to finally watch The Simpsons. And yes, I just outed you for that to our whole audience. And you know, I have been on a bit of a Simpsons resurgence kick lately because it's good to check in every decade or so. And they just did their annual Treehouse of Horror Halloween special. And that that's where they do three vignettes. So they're short stories. And the third of this year's three vignettes was a full Westworld parody that essentially is Netflix-topia we've been talking about. It is like they ripped it out of our brains and animated it in the like two days between when we recorded and when it aired, which is, I think, how fast they turn around animation these days. Wow. So it's not that I need to watch The Simpsons. It's that I need to write for The Simpsons. Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay, correct. Cool. 
We'll get working on that in a future episode where I finally indoctrinate you. Listener, if you know the five episodes of The Simpsons that I must make Diane watch, you can email those suggestions to me, podcast at streamageddon.com. It is a list in progress. But back to our favorite place to be, Walmart, and specifically the Netflix hub inside of Walmart. Uh, The one other item they, they... Posit they may be selling here are curated quote unquote concession kits that will give you snacks sold in movie theaters, which is literally Blockbuster. You are just describing the only other things they sold at Blockbuster. And in a way, I'm like, yeah, actually, that was part of the entire Blockbuster experience. It wasn't just picking out the movie, but it was buying jumbo sized boxes of raisinets that you would regret opening as soon as you get home. I loved that they had those tubs of popcorn. It was like instant popcorn for the microwave, but it was in the movie theater thing. So you could act like you were at the movies. Bring it back. Yes. Yeah. So now you've outed me as not having watched The Simpsons and as being a senior citizen. Thank you so much. Well, you know, I think the, the latter part, we, we talk about network television enough. They assume we are senior citizens, so that's no surprise to any listeners of this show. Uh, <laughs> but what may be a surprise to listeners of this show is my last random headline of the week. And this one is a little bit of follow-up to our favorite Doom streaming service. Oh, it just sneaks up on me every time. Peacock. Peacock, yes. Uh, We've talked about Peacock's recent decision that maybe they don't Peacock comedy anymore. And they've uh, passed off Girls 5 Eva, the new season, to Netflix. Uh, And and I've had some time to listen to other intelligent takes about this. And it does seem like it was the correct move for all parties involved. Which leads to this next piece of news about Peacock. Another strange partnership. They seem just open to all parties right now. It is the Hallmark Channel appearing on Peacock. Essentially, within Peacock, they are doing Hallmark Channel Inception inside of Peacock just in time for Hallmark holiday movie season. This makes a ton of sense to me, actually. As someone who doesn't necessarily watch Hallmark, but I know people who do. And if you think of Peacock and something like WrestleMania driving a bunch of viewers to Peacock, they might want to balance that out in terms of demographics with something that is more, and obviously I'm dealing in in stereotype here, but that's more catered toward women in terms of its marketing. Um, So this makes sense to me. I agree. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really interesting that the deal includes both on-demand content, which you would kind of expect on a streaming service, but also simulcast of the Hallmark Channel, or channels, plural, I regret to inform you. Uh, And that means that during, again, this upcoming major Hallmark holiday movie season, essentially the the season at the Hallmark Channels, uh, people who will be at home doing the holiday things that they normally do will be able to watch those shows, movies live on Peacock. And that could be very helpful if they are people who've cable cut, because the only other option for that kind of Hallmark holiday movie content is Netflix, which is, you know, the king of holiday movie streaming right now. And I imagine Hallmark, the company that invented the holiday movie genre, uh, is looking to finally uh, mount a real streaming play. And they can't do it alone, because as much as people love those movies, the the evidence is more than apparent that you'll just go to Netflix that you already pay for to watch a different flavor of the exact same thing. 
I sure will. I do think that um, when we talked last week about Peacock, I felt disappointed to learn that they were moving away from these comedy series. But at the same time, that's because that's what I want from a streamer. But I am not someone who turns on the Hallmark channel necessarily because I like streaming services that feel like streaming services. You know, I like Netflix. I like HBO Max. Those are going to be my my go-tos probably. Um, Peacock seems like it's becoming a streaming service for cable cutters who didn't want to cut their cable who want to watch cable, you know, it's basically now more like watching TV than whereas Netflix, you still, you know, browse and you don't have channels. It's much easier if they're recommending you stuff and you know what you're looking for. It doesn't feel like turning on the TV. I think there's an interesting business play there. I, I, the passive channel surf is something that is basically impossible on modern Netflix. And you can have a million conversations at bad po- uh, holiday parties about, you know, Netflix choice anxiety. Oh, what are, you, what are you watching on Netflix? Oh, I can never decide what to watch on Netflix. And Peacock, you know, drawing from their roots, uh, looks at that and goes, yeah, uh, but also don't you just want to, like, turn it on and just have it automatically do something? And that is true. I do want that sometimes. The problem is they have not trained me to want to do that when I sit down to stream something. The the problem is a, a whole generation, really two generations at this point, of consumers have unlearned those habits. And so it's not that it's a bad idea, and it's not that the demand doesn't exist at all, but you are fighting against a completely new set of habits that people have formed. That's true for those viewers. I wonder if they're looking too, though, that there may still be folks in, you know, older generations who do still feel accustomed to channel surfing, uh, who are going to cut cable for cost reasons or just because, you know, now they don't need streaming or they don't need cable the way that they once did. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, way to look at it, too. You might think, uh, you know, and again, I don't have Peacock's numbers in front of me, but we we know that no one's thrilled with Peacock's numbers. But you might look at it and go, well, you know, the streaming market is pretty saturated in the younger demographics. The, the cord cutter demographics, essentially, are pretty full up on their streaming appetite right now. And as the economy contracts, too, you know, they're people who are not looking to add more streaming costs because they already just have so much uh, that they could, in fact, probably do with less. Whereas you have the older uh, demographics that are still subscribed to cable. They might even be subscribed to a Comcast-provided cable service that includes Peacock Premium, which is not the one with no ads. You still pay more for that. Uh, But the idea there is that might be a bridge to get people who are the older, more cable-centric TV demographic, literal sit in front of the television and see what's on. And here, let's build a streaming service for them where they can just turn it on and just see what's on if they have no idea what they want to pick out. That makes a ton of sense to me. And Also, if you're thinking of folks who are used to a cable service and want something that replicates that experience, they might not mind ads. That's true, too. That's also part of it. If they're already paying for cable, they're watching a ton of ads when they watch TV on cable. So in a way, it just feels like, oh, I can watch TV on this other channel. That channel happens to be Peacock, and it happens to have the Hallmark channels incepted within it, in addition to our other favorite Peacock verticals, like the thing that just plays episodes of The Office nonstop, or uh, the MSNBC hub on Peacock, I think it's called. All of that. You can just turn one of 
of those on, and they just play things for you. A good lazy option. Yeah. If if that strategy works, great. And in a way, I can see why you're then pivoting away from um, high-concept comedy like Girls 5 Eva or Rutherford Falls, which are on their own really interesting, funny shows. But they are serialized, more or less. Uh, Girls 5 Eva, super referential and meta. That's not that kind of light, just tune in and drop in whenever fair. That just isn't. What is that kind of fair is like, uh, you know, the Chicago series of shows, the Dick Wolf cinematic universe, any crime procedural under God's green sun, you know? And while those might not be our favorite shows necessarily, they are among the most popular television shows in the country, so... Yeah. So, you know, while uh, many may poo-poo Peacock, as we have repeatedly in the last 10 minutes, uh, you know, the, the truth is, the truth is they, they are not idiots. And there does actually seem to be a real uh, considered pivot going on. And I'll be interested to see where it goes, because at the same time, you have to remember, they are still NBC Universal. Universal makes television shows for a variety of networks. And, you know, as they navigate what NBC Universal is in the streaming era. It's not to say that the brand of comedy that we've come to associate with NBC is dead, but it could be that it is now the brand of comedy we come to associate with Universal. And where those shows go depends on what net, what streamer wants to make itself the face of that kind of comedy. And right now, I, ironically, it's sort of Netflix because they've found a lot of success with that kind of content. It's a heartwarming holiday meet-cute between Hallmark and Peacock. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to tune in! Can I see it live, simulcast, in a tab within the Peacock app? Because if I can, sign me up. That is my favorite way to view things. Good news, Chris. Christmas came early for me, and Christmas is coming early for all of us, because we are about to talk about uh, a show that we're both very excited to return to, and we are going to get deep into some predictions about what we think will happen. So please, whether you are a fan or not, come join us on this uh, review plus uh, prediction cast. What's the word for that in our in our big podcasting industry? We're, we're big podcasting professionals here. You know... Uh, Tanya McQuad of uh, The White Lotus, <laughs> I believe that she believes in, in tarot and mind readers and, um, you know, psychics. So perhaps, you know, we'll, we'll do a, a bit of our own TV tarot. TV tarot. That's the name of the segment coming at you in this review. Yes, we are going on a vacation of a review. Just a balmy day on the beach of doom. That is The White Lotus. A a lovely, uh, satirical, ominous uh, soap opera. Does that sound right? I feel like that's what it is. Sure. I think it has some shades of dark comedy, too. Sure, sure. I guess I was wrapping that into the, the satire portion. And and I think Fair. some people have different expectations of what the satire on this show is and how biting, perhaps, it should be. But that is a discussion for a little later, because we are going to talk about season two, 
episode one of The White Lotus on HBO and HBO Max. And yes, this is the second season of the show. But if you're not familiar, it is an anthology series, which means the second season, the story is completely, with a tiny asterisk, completely separate from the story of season one, Uh, which means we are not going to spoil any of the major reveals in season one. Uh, It is fair to say someone dies in season one because we know that in the pilot. That is the setup of the show. But we're not going to reveal who died. We're not going to reveal how they died. I I would say there is one small spoiler that will be hard to avoid in season uh, one, which is uh, Tanya McCoyd played by Jennifer Coolidge, Emmy winner Jennifer Coolidge. Uh, She does return in season two. She is the only character to return in the second season, kind of our Easter egg of the anthology world. Uh, But we, we cannot avoid spoiling a little bit about her journey as we discuss our expectations for her. So if you are about to binge all of season one of The White Lotus and want absolutely zero spoilers, I would say, pause right here, bookmark this for later in your podcast app of choice, and uh, go watch season one. But if you have seen season one and uh, don't care, great, that's perfect. And if you just don't care whatsoever, uh, also acceptable, not as perfect, but again, uh, who cares? It's an anthology. You could just start with season two. And, uh, uh, you know, that's what's interesting about anthologies, because, you know, before... Before we get to too far into our discussion of the White Lotus. I thought we could talk about our favorite anthology series. It's sort of a hip genre. It is. I can see why, too. As uh, TV shows become, or here's one theory as to why, and I might be wrong, but as uh, TV shows become more prestige content, I think there are a lot of A-listers who want to be on great TV shows led by great creators, but might not want to be stuck in a TV contract for more than a season. Uh, Particularly if you are someone like, say, um, a Laura Dern who's getting tons of work. She might not want to be on like five, six seasons of a show, which, I, you know, it could last that long. Yeah, I look at season two of The White Lotus, F. Murray Abraham. He he is an extremely talented, hardworking actor, but he is also an extremely old, hardworking actor. And I imagine somebody in his uh, position probably doesn't want to sign up for an indefinite run of a series. The idea is you want to do a project and then see how you're feeling, what you want to do next. You're, you you only have finite amount of time left. I, it is not to say, I think, like, oh, physically he's not up to it. No, I'm saying when you hit a certain age, you begin counting down, not up. And as an artist, you want to choose what you work on with the utmost, you know, level of interest, especially if you're someone successful enough where you can essentially say yes or no to anything they put in front of you. So I do think there is that thing of there are certain actors who just no matter how good the material is, will not sign up for an indefinite run of an old-fashioned TV show, or even just like a three-season agreement, because that's essentially three years of your life. Right. That's a ton of work. It's um, really consuming, and it could mean turning down other great opportunities. So I think that anthology series, for that one, for for stars, you can attract some big talent. Yeah, and then I think on the storytelling side, which really, um, from the business perspective, means, you know, the audience side, uh, the advantage to an anthology show is 
you can jump in as a new viewer on any season and then the older seasons are kind of evergreen back content that you can go back to so you know imagine you hear about this great show if it's stranger things and you find out about it at season three you need to go back and watch seasons one and two before you really are fully up to date and can jump right in certainly you could read some, you know, uh, recaps and then just start at season three. But then if you go back and watch seasons one and two later, they've been spoiled for you, essentially. And if you care, it's not going to be as enjoyable. Whereas if you take an anthology show, like, say, The White Lotus, you can watch season two and then go back and watch season one out of order. And you'll still get a pretty similar experience to somebody who watched them both back to back with the, the slight asterisks of Tanya McCoy moving backwards in time. But for the most part, there's a benefit there to the network or the streamer because they can say, yeah, this is a show where it has more chances to find its audience because maybe the first season doesn't click with them, but then the second season is a new cast, a new story. Oh, that second season was a hit. And now they're going to watch the third season. And then while they wait for the fourth, they go back and they watch the first. It makes a ton of sense. I find it uh, enjoyable as a viewer, though I do sometimes find myself less compelled to watch things on time week to week with an anthology series. I was just listening to another podcast, the extremely excellent Downstream from Relay FM, uh, talking about Andor. Uh, because Julia Alexander, who we love, uh, wrote about Andor and how, while it's a critical hit, is not finding the viewership levels that uh, the other Star Wars series have found. Which is interesting, because we're both big Andor fans, and uh, and we've talked about how Star Wars is maybe kind of oversaturated with some mediocre content up to this point. Uh, and one of the theories they're running with, which I think is real, uh, and speaks to what you were just talking about, is that a lot of people are just going to wait until the whole Andor season is finished, and then they're going to binge it at whatever pace they want to binge it. A lot of people know that it's essentially a limited series. It's got a, a specific structure that we've talked about before, and everybody knows it's going to end after two seasons because, spoiler alert, he dies in a movie that we've all already seen. So I think there is something really true about the risks of an anthology format is, well, I don't feel like I need to be caught up week to week because it's one 10-hour movie. I'd rather just watch the 10-hour movie at the end over a weekend. I also love thematically how it allows creators to investigate a theme from different vantage points. I, I, I've found that really satisfying about this type of storytelling. Even if it's a whole season, um, like something like The White Lotus, it, this season to me feels like it's um, asking similar questions in a different way than the first season. Yeah, and that's something where if you go like to the extreme anthology examples, shows that literally change the story every single episode, that that's their bread and butter. Black Mirror is probably the best example of that. Every episode is about uh, our dystopian relationship with technology, but each one's different, and they cover a wide range of stories and tones and genres, but all of them are different angles at the same question. So I'm going to be frank and say that for me, I really prefer an anthology series that goes 
season to season than episode to episode. I just don't feel compelled to watch those. Yeah, I actually, I, I thought about this a lot as we were preparing for this episode. And, you know, I, I literally just compared a 10-episode limited series, like, let's say, The Patient, which we just talked about, to a 10-hour mm. movie. You know, I literally just said that. But in reality, how I feel as a viewer is that a 10-hour miniseries is telling a story that is too long for a movie, whereas a one-hour episode of, like, a Black Mirror, and I love Black Mirror. This is not a critique on Black Mirror specifically, but a one-hour episode of Black Mirror that just tells one story in one hour, that is much closer to it should just be a movie to me because it's almost the length of a movie and it's telling the story in the structure of a short movie. Like, I do think as a lover of television and that style of storytelling, I much prefer a limited series because they, they get to travel distances in the storytelling and the character development that a uh, movie never can try. Just, you know, flat out, not even James Cameron can get away with a 10-hour movie. Yet. Oh, please, no. Uh, so, Chris, what is your favorite anthology series? Oh, my gosh, Diane, I am so glad you asked because I came prepared with a list. A list? A okay, list. I have, like, two. Tell me okay, more. I, Tell I, got me up, more. I got up to three. Uh, and I, I, I wanted a list because I, I have a sense we're going to agree on some of these. So I wanted to make sure we had some, some discussion points. So if you have uh, two, uh, I'll start with number three. Uh, number three, American Crime Story. Ryan Murphy's American Crime Story. Agreed. Big fan. Huge fan. And this one I like is another example of both the highs and the lows of uh, anthology storytelling for the, the artist, let's say. The first season of American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, one of the best seasons of television I have ever seen in my life. And then the following seasons do not touch that unattainable high. And, and that's the problem is it's not to say that they are not good on their own, but that a risk you run with an anthology show is sometimes one season is so much better than all the others because it's lightning in a bottle. And of course, also, I, I think it would have been bad if they'd gone, wow, the People versus O.J. Simpson, renew it. Let's do season two of O.J. That also would not have worked. So it's one of those things where there is no magic answer. But I think it's one of the risks with an anthology show is what if your first season's the best one just because of unique circumstances that, you know, sometimes art is a certain alchemy of the, the right people in the right moment in the right story. You can't you can't be blamed for that. But then is the anthology less does it lose audience and lose steam in the later seasons, as I kind of feel like American Crime Story has because, you know, the impeachment season not uh, talked about very much. Uh, no, but I, I actually really like the Versace season. I, I'll, I'll say it. I thought it was really fun. Um, I gripping i shouldn't call fun <laughs> murder fun. series fun but it was fun i'll admit it um ryan murphy gets me but i do think that uh sometimes the reason the first season of a se series like this is the best is because it's the thing they had the initial idea about it's the artistic impulse that the creator had and then someone you know is like well could you make it into six seasons instead of one and they're like Sure, there are lots of crimes. Yes, <laughs> American you crimes. I think you just described the uh, interview with Nick Palazzo of True Detective when he when oh, he got yeah. extended at HBO. Right? They're like, "This True Detective, it's so great. You got to do more." And he's like, "Sure, crimes. There are lots of crimes." 
Unfortunately, they're not all True Detective Season 1. I don't like True Detective Season 1. Honestly, hasn't aged well. But you know, I will watch Woody Harrelson do anything for any length of time, as evidenced by the Hunger Games franchises. Hmm. But that is not a limited series. That's a franchise. Completely different. Somewhat similar sometimes, but completely different. We're not at the, the one that is a franchise yet, but we're almost. I guess we already did one that is a franchise, because of course, American Crime Story, a spinoff of American Horror Story, but not on my top three lists. So moving on. Like, what year is this? 2008? American Horror Story? Please. Uh, also on my list, a comedy. TBS's Miracle Workers. Haven't seen it. Uh, fan of a lot of people involved in it, so really have no excuse to have not seen it yet. That one's really fun because I actually uh, think the second and third season, when they go full into this anthology format, are the best seasons. The first season is based on a different uh, book by by the same author, essentially. Uh, and then in the second season, they take a different one of his books. And in the third season, they're like, we could just make anything up at this point. And that's when I think they really start firing on all cylinders. When they're like, yes, we're changing the setting and the characters and the genre every season. And that, to me, is an, a... Yes, make that choice. If you're going to make that anthology choice, uh, go full, full tilt. They change the genre every season? It's a, it's always a comedy, but like right. season three is a Western. They're on the Oregon Trail. And so it's, Very uh, cool. it, it, you know, it is speaking in modern vernacular, but touches on these old Westerns in genre tropes. And season two is set in the Middle Ages. So if someone who hasn't seen the show, would you recommend I jump in at season three? Or is it better? Um, well, boy, as, as a person who also loves the people involved in this show, I feel I feel like on the spot to be like, oh, but honestly, I never finished season one and I eventually just skipped to season two and you miss nothing because it truly there is no connective tissue except the cast. And, and what it becomes then is kind of a show that plays with the same themes every season and some of the same... Uh, timeless storytelling devices like boy meets girl sure and you can do so many riffs on that that are so fresh and funny especially because it's a comedy and because it's stacked with a cast that includes you know daniel radcliffe john bash steve buscemi you don't you don't need to give them more than some solid foundation to work on and that's what they get they uh, honestly you can tell too the writers just understand the cast really well which is again i think the sign of an anthology that's really successful is writers who understand either the set cast that changes characters each season which is one kind of understanding where you need to know oh i know who daniel is and when i have to write a new character for daniel i can write to daniel's strengths it's a it's honestly like a skill that you have to have to write for a sketch comedy show or you can be the other kind of anthology, like, say, The White Lotus, where the cast changes every year. And so you have to actually have a different skill, which is coming up with new characters and making them work with new actors, but having them be in the correct tone of the show. And you can even slightly shift the tone season to season if it suits you. I, I think creatively, that's such a, a fun opportunity. Well, what's on your list? Because I, I don't want to give away number one until I know what else is on uh, Diane's list of the best anthology series. Oh my gosh, it's Fargo. That's it. That's number one, isn't it? 
It's the best. It is the it's best. It's the best of and the that, best. There's our franchise. That's a show. Where I remember when they first pitched Noah Hawley doing the uh, Fargo series for FX. Everybody's question was, so is it just going to be the story of the movie Fargo, but told over eight episodes or ten episodes? And what it is, is Fargo is a vibe. Mm-hmm. And that once you figure that out, they, they my favorite anthology show in terms of its ability to maintain its vibe over a run. They're four seasons in, and they've kept it fresh enough without ever betraying that core, again, vibe of Fargo. And because uh, part of the Fargo vibe involves um, outstanding character actors, the anthology series is so exciting because each season you get to meet this new cast of eccentric characters and sometimes you know you'll you'll get uh an actor that you already love from other work like um you know chris rock doing something new and cool or sometimes you know you get like your your standard fargo characters it's it's just it's so fun I I, I I love that series i think you you put it perfectly because when i was uh putting fargo on my list and thinking in my mind which season of fargo is my favorite season do you know how i named them in my mind Mm. Well, there's the Gene Smart season. There's the Billy Bob Thornton season. Oh, there's the Ewan McGregor and Ewan McGregor as Ewan McGregor's brother season. And then there's the Chris Rock and, um, oh, oh my God, Jason Schwartzman season. Just and, and the fact that that's the pair that season is Chris Rock and Jason Schwartzman set in like the 1930s. Chef's kiss. Truly. Truly, this is why we do a podcast together, Diane, because we both have the finest of tastes when it comes to <laughs> anthology series. Do you have a favorite Fargo season? Oh, it's at the end of the day, it's a hard toss-up between season two, which is the Gene Smart season, and season three, which is the Ewan McGregor v. Ewan McGregor season. I, I lean towards season two. That is probably... Ah, yeah, yeah. I got to give that's Chris, uh, Kirsten Dunst, Patrick Wilson, Jesse Plemons, Ted Danson. That season is stacked. Oh, yeah. I think that um, Kirsten Dunst's performance in season two of yeah. Fargo is like the some of the best TV acting. I'll put it this way. Seen. That's the season I've rewatched the most times. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're all good, though. Yeah, all, they are. all good. Keep it coming. Keep it coming, Noah Hawley. FX on Hulu is there for you, I'm sure. Please do. Yeah. Okay, but that is uh, enough about other shows. So many good shows to watch. It's almost like it's the golden age of television. And uh, one of the surprising jewels in that crown of the golden age of TV is Mike White, a man who uh, some people feel like just appeared on the scene out of nowhere with the White Lotus last uh, fall. Uh, But in fact, Mike White has been working in the TV industry for so, so long. He created Enlightened, which was an HBO series starring Laura Dern. And he is an actual contestant from Survivor because he is he is television. This is my theory on Mike White. He is walking television embodied. Prestige cable, CBS uh, Survivor procedural reality show in its 30th season. He's done it all. No wonder I love him so much. It's true. Me too. I also think that bringing a bit of CBS flavor to prestige television does does some good for prestige television you know i i love my hbo i love to be you know perhaps a tad on the pretentious side of my viewing some might suggest 
I wouldn't, but some might suggest. But having that bit of um, populist flavor in there, it's, uh, it's entertaining. I agree. I think that's actually the secret to Mike White's style as a creator, because he's the writer-director. This is very much an auteur sort of situation. And I think a lot of that voice that he has that people are just lit up by is the fact that he knows both sides of the taste spectrum here and understands that they actually have a lot more in common than I think the con- the average HBO viewer is willing to admit. Agreed. Yeah, it's very uh, a fun mix of highbrow, lowbrow. And at the same time, it has a wit to it that um, reminds me a little of like an Oscar Wilde of our time where it's like, he's not allowed to say that, is he? Well, he said it, you know, with such devilish charm. I guess we'll let him get away with it. I think it's that's, so fun. That's, yes, and and it bears repeating. The White Lotus is fun. One vibe mm. throughout the first season, where again, one of the driving vibes of the show. I'm in a big vibes mood this week, so you're just going to have to go with <laughs> the vibes. One of the driving vibes of the White Lotus is who died and how, because both seasons set you up with that mystery at the beginning. But what keeps you uh, enjoying that ride is how funny and fun the show is, and how deliciously petty the argument are. It is a soap opera in so many ways, but it's a soap opera where the stakes are both so low it's hilarious and in the back of your mind you know so high because somebody dies. Right, absolutely. I think it um, captures that golden rule of comedy where like uh, the things that matter the most to people should be the things that are most trivial. So um, to take an example from the pilot of season one that I don't think would count as a spoiler, you know, is, oh, I was told I'd have the pineapple sweet, you know, and that that becoming something that's like, you know, a, a huge issue for someone, um, a life or death importance issue, metaphorically, um, is, you know, a bigger deal to someone than like, uh, my wife's career. Mm-hmm. As an example, I think that's a good one. And, you know, if you're uh, just catching up on this phenomenon of the White Lotus, one thing to know as well that I just think is interesting, again, to the the tone of the show, the first season is entirely set in this resort in Hawaii. And the reason, essentially, is because the pandemic HBO had to stop shooting everything for a while, and they called up all their friends and went, can you write anything that takes place in a single location, preferably one that's isolated and available? And Mike White, again, being television embodied, somehow intuited the answer would be a resort in Hawaii. And sure enough, it is. And that that kernel of, like, necessity is the, the best form of inspiration sometimes leads us to season two, where now the White Lotus is a chain, And the White Lotus in Sicily is where we're going to spend our time this season. And I say this because I think there's a risk that, especially with the HBO crowd, the highbrow side of this uh, equation, people are looking for the show to be really deep and meaningful. And it's not to say the show is never deep or never meaningful, but it is to say that is not why the show exists. Both literally, it was not created out of some deep desire to tell the story of a hotel. It was created out of, hey, what if we could shoot something at a hotel? And what would that be? And what would be interesting and fun to do? And that leads us to why the show, I think, is so enjoyable, because it's kind of born out of spontaneity and excitement and, ooh, what stories can we tell with this this, um, 
collection of tools in front of us. Uh, and, and I think that's why it's so good. I have seen in some of the early reactions to the new season, people, you know, kind of wringing their hands that the, the satire isn't as sharp as I expected it to be this season. And, and I just think, well, that's not the that's not what the show is here to do primarily. That is in the mix. But it's not here to teach us all a lesson because it shouldn't it's not the point of this kind of show it doesn't have to have that burden associated with it i think that the show is very knowingly mocking people who must have their content um give them some sort of morality in this in the pilot of season two i guess it's not a pilot anymore but you you know what i mean because it's an anthology in the first episode of season two i was watching aubrey plaza's character and be like oh she's she's me she can't have any fun because unless you know we're talking about the end of the world and watching myself in that i i did laugh i was entertained but i also did some uh some reflection and some cringing so i do wonder if some of those people who are wringing their hands and saying it lacks depth are unwilling to look in the mirror a bit right uh, well, I think that's a great entry to us meeting the cast of characters this season. But there is only one way we could meet the cast of characters on a new vacation to a new White Lotus property. And that would be by playing, um, I'm sorry, what did we call it? Tarot time? TV Tarot. TV Tarot. I forgot the name, but I did cue up this music for TV Tarot. That's right. It's TV Tarot, the game we just created, uh, but did plan for in advance, so I'm looking at a spreadsheet now, where Diane and I are going to go through the main characters in Season 2 of The White Lotus, and we are going to predict, are they going to die? Or, you know, not. And uh, so for those of you who are uh, just catching up with Season 2 of The White Lotus, perhaps you uh, already forgot the setup at the beginning of Episode 1, we know that at least one body comes out of the water as uh, one of the characters goes to the beach on the final day, and when they go to the beach, they find a body. But that is not the only death we're clued into, because the hotel staff, Rocco, tells Valentina that multiple guests have died. How many? How did they die? Was it murder? We don't know all those details yet. So, instead, I thought, before we list the characters and guess who lives and who doesn't, we would go, okay, Diane, for one point, because of course we have to score everything, for one point, how many people do you think will die this season on The White Lotus? I'm, I'm going big. I'm going four. Wow. Locked and loaded. It's in the document now, Diane. Uh, I am going to go three. I think if it was only two, the language would have been different. Uh, but it did sound like multiple. And so three seems like a safe bet. But I am proud of you for going big or going home. Thank you. Okay, that brings us to question number two. Again, for one point, Diane, uh, do you think all the deaths are murders? Or do you think that there's a mix here of murder, no murder, maybe none of them are murders? This is a yes or no. I won't make you say how many, no ratios needed. I will add that Rocco tells Valentina that several guests have been killed. 
Yes, I do not, think there are some murders. He does say killed. So I'm going to say that there are some murders, but they are not all murders. So my answer is no. I agree. I also answered no. I think somebody dies of natural causes. And if I if there were bonus points on the line, I would speculate perhaps that somebody looks like they were murdered, but was not. But but we don't need to go that far. I'm going to just drop that there in case Mike White is listening and still writing season two of The White Lotus. I don't know how TV works, uh, but the real meat of this game is the spreadsheet in front of me. We are going to go through the main characters we've met through episode one of season two of The White Lotus, and we are going to say whether we think they're going to live or die, and then we'll come back at the end of the season and score this. Uh, a right pick will be worth two points, but a wrong pick will cost you a point. And if you miss somebody, well, too bad. Zero points either way. So your risk here is, you know, do you think they're going to live or die? And you should, in theory, pick four people from the list as we go, but I won't hold you to that, Diane. You are allowed to, you know, kind of hedge your bets here. Uh, let's begin with the the three men on their boys' trip together, the DeGrasso family, uh, Bert, Dominic, and Albie. Uh, Bert DeGrasso, the patriarch, essentially, is an extremely horny F. Murray Abraham. Uh, He's already fallen by the pool once, so I'm going to go with a hard, he's not going to die, because they're really hinting that he might die, which seems like, you know, a red herring. I think that he his character has big Death in Venice, the Visconti film vibes to me, and that he is going to die. All right. We have our first disagreement. I like this. I like this. Okay, but what about the rest of the DeGrasso men? We have Dominic DeGrasso, played by Michael Imperioli, who has uh, clearly been cheating on his wife, and now his relationship is over. And fun fact, his wife on the phone is voiced by Laura Dern in an uncredited cameo, which I also think means there is zero possibility of us meeting his wife. So I don't think she kills him. And I don't think he dies. I don't think he dies. I do want to take one moment to say Michael Imperioli is one of my favorite actors. And I'm so excited that I get to watch him every week right now. It's so happy. It's so happy about oh, it. I'm so happy for you. Thank but you. I'm, I'm also happy for the fans of Albie DeGrasso. This season's, uh, you know, this season's kind of naive or innocent teenage character. But this time they've aged him up a bit so he can be hornier without it being creepy, I think. Uh, this is played by an actor, Adam DeMarco. So far, he has not done very much except be the least skeezy man in his family, which leads me to think that he will turn out to be a lot skeezier than uh, we realize at some point. Uh, I don't think he's going to die, but I have not picked anyone to die yet, so I'm wondering, should I pick him to die? I, I'm going to say he's going to die. I think it'd be a twist. I, I, I'd i say it's my least confident pick, but uh, a DeGrasso has to die, and I'm going to guess the young one. That would be a tragic turn. I uh, don't think so. I I hope you are correct. I have no pride in losing this game. Uh, But also, if I win, I will gloat. This brings us to the next group of people on this uh, vacation. This would be the McQuoid Hunts, which is, of course, Jennifer Coolidge's return as Tanya McQuoid. Now, Tanya McCoy Hunt. Uh, I do not think they're going to kill off Jennifer Coolidge, because I think Jennifer Coolidge is the through line of the White Lotus. I agree that they are not going to, though there may be an attempt on her life. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Uh, What about her husband, Greg? 
I think Greg Hunt is going to die. I do too. He's already acting super suspicious, and uh, we are led to think perhaps he is cheating on Tanya, but I think he is involved in something uh, unsavory and perhaps dangerous. Mm-hmm. Which leads us to Tanya's assistant, Portia. Greg is very angry that Portia has come with Tanya on the trip, and I I think it's perhaps related to him being in some dubious dealings. Uh, But will that threaten Portia's safety? What do you think? I think it could threaten Portia's safety, but I do not think Portia is going to die. Me neither. So we will leave Portia on the board. Uh, Now we get to the couple's who are here on a trip together, the people who have really slotted in for the main uh, people you loved to hate in season one. Uh, this is Harper Spiller and Ethan Spiller, so Aubrey Plaza and Will Sharp, and then their friends who you love to hate, Daphne Babcock and Cameron Babcock, who don't watch the news, don't know what's wrong with the world, and would like to get another round of spritzes. So I think that one of these four is going to die and my guess is that it's ethan spiller played by will sharp uh yeah i think ethan spiller is going to kill somebody i think the body floating in the water was cameron babcock because it was daphne babcock who found the body and was so upset daphne babcock seems like the kind of person who would be pretty upset seeing any dead body but sure that's that's what I'm going to go with. We also I'm basing a little bit of that prediction on the kind of coming this season sizzle reel that HBO had for me at the end of the episode, where it sure does look like things are going to go south between Ethan and Cameron. And, mm-hmm. and I get the sense that it's a bigger twist for Ethan to be a killer than to be killed. Interesting. I do think that there'll be a... Um... It's definitely going to be a dead husband. We've had, or they're definitely foreshadowing a dead husband, a dead cheating husband's head. Yes, yes. Through the many, many head vases that we are uh, forced to think a lot about. Teste di moro. Teste di moro. Okay, speaking of Italian words, uh, I do have two bonus categories here. Uh, In theory, a dead person uh, could be not a guest. Certainly we know some guests have died, but uh, perhaps a local person like uh, Mia uh, or uh, her friend Lucia. Lucia. uh, Perhaps one of them dies. What do you think? Do you think a local, an employee, or a townsperson dies? Yes, I think Lucia is my fourth dead person guest. Wow. Well, our other category is someone who hasn't been introduced yet. And I am going to put a vote down for someone who hasn't been introduced yet, which I realize means I voted for four deaths, but only guessed three would happen. But again, I'm hedging my bets. Probably in the wrong direction. If you actually do bet on things, you're probably cringing at my poor strategy here. But you know what? I'm pretty sure they're going to introduce somebody mid-season who will be among the dead and the least surprising, which will then help us be more surprised by the twists. Sure, that tracks to me. I could see, I could see, I mean, that also would echo last season in which they they added a great character around season five, I think. So um, I I, I do think they'll introduce someone. Do you think they will die? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go five out of four. Great, great. Uh, we're we're just playing the board here, and there you have it. We have played our first round of TV tarot. 
and we'll be back at the end of the White Lotus Season 2 to score the card and tell you who won. You should play along at home. I don't have a way for you to easily do that. You can just rewind and write down your answers as we go, and then email them to me, podcast at streamageddon.com. If you do better than us, you'll win a prize. Uh, The prize has no value in American currency or any cryptocurrency, Uh, but, you know, the, the prize is kind of like a blue check mark. It makes you feel good, and it costs you $8 a month payable to me directly. Fantastic. But if you want to play for free, email us to podcast at streamageddon.com. And if you are watching The White Lotus, share your thoughts as the season goes on. Uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. As am I. Ooh, it's, it's, uh, White Lotus is getting a little sexy. Uh, as, I, as I said before we started recording, you know, we do our pleasantries. Diane asks how I'm doing, and I go, you know, Diane, I've had a terrible week. But that's why I'm glad the horny murder victims are back. And that... That is the White Lotus, ladies and gentlemen. So until next time, keep streaming, but keep streaming the White Lotus way. Which again is horny and under uh, threat of death. I should have said I was titillated and terrified. (laughs) 